Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn again to the book of Acts. We were in the book of Acts this morning, and specifically, I'd like you to look with me for a moment at Acts chapter 8. My hope is that we can have a few moments at the end of uh, our time together this evening for a question and answer. We would uh, enjoy uh, handling, fielding some of your questions if you happen to have any about us or about our ministry or about Baptist World Mission um, or even about back in our wonderful years in Togo, West Africa. Acts chapter 8, let me just read uh, the first four verses. Again, uh, this is following Acts 7, of course, where Stephen is stoned. And Saul, verse 1 of chapter 8, was consenting unto his death. And at that time there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hailing men and women, committed them to prison. Therefore, they that were scattered abroad, notice that terminology, they that were scattered abroad, went everywhere preaching the word. Father, I pray that you would instruct us tonight through your word. Thank you for it. Thank you for preserving it so that what we hold in our hands is your very word. It has authority in our lives I pray that your Holy Spirit would be pleased to be our teacher during these moments. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. There's so much happening in this text and in the, the context, the, the text of Scripture that surround this. Uh, obviously, the beginning of the missionary endeavor, the beginning of the church, happens here in the book of Acts. And uh, here we have these folks who were the diaspora, the scattered abroad, uh, you know, Tertullian, one of the early church fathers, said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. What Satan thought would be the defeat of the church was, in fact, the, the, the fan to the fire that spread the church growth uh, in those early centuries. And uh, we must begin uh, any discussion or any preaching regarding missions here in the book of Acts. And I'd like to go back with your permission to Acts chapter 1 and just lay a little bit of foundation. In fact, I'd like to start before Acts chapter 1 and asking you this question. How many of the disciples, now Judas had already gone out and taken his own life, how many of the 11 stood at the foot of the cross? One. His name was John. You know, John takes some beating sometimes from those of us that look back at his life as the one who referred to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. John is not saying that Jesus loved me, he didn't love the other disciples, any more than we are saying that when we sing, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. John was there. Where were the other ten? Um... I envision in my mind's eye the other ten were looking at the scene from a distance, some around buildings, some from behind trees. These men were defeated. 
They thought that the Messiah would come and set up his kingdom and remove from Israel the Roman oppression that was so much of a heavy blanket on their lives and uh, that everything would be turned around and everything would be victorious and everything would be great and they would be involved in that and yet they're watching the Christ one hang on a Roman cross and die. Um, No overthrow, no kingdom, death, only death. And these men were defeated. What changed all that? The resurrection. That's right. Two weeks from now we will commemorate, and as believers we ought to commemorate the fact that he has risen every Lord's Day. And every day, for that matter, we serve a risen Savior. Amen? But Dr. Luke writes here in Acts chapter 1, verse 3, "...to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion, by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God." So here in chapter 1 of Acts, we have uh, the final instructions to the disciples from the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Redeemer goes up. His ascension back into heaven is later in the chapter. In chapter 2, we have the Holy Spirit coming down on the day of Pentecost. And uh, he would be the source of power for the church's endeavor and the church's mission. Yea, the power behind the gospel, the dunamis, would be the Holy Spirit himself. Peter preaches on this day. And uh, wouldn't you have loved to have been there to see over 3,000 men trust Christ as their Savior. An amazing, amazing day. And also in chapter 2, we have the formula for local church activity at the end of the chapter, starting with verses 1 through 47. And then in chapter 3, if you'll turn there with me, it says simply, Now Peter and John went up together into the temple at the hour of prayer, being the ninth hour, and uh, they meet a man. Uh, this, is, this is a man who, the text says, was lame from his mother's womb and, and was always carried. I have met some of these, uh, we might call them beggars, in third world countries. Uh, in Togo, these men often uh, ride bicycles. Uh, now, if you're lame from your mother's womb... Your legs are probably folded up under your body. Some of these men, you wouldn't even know that they had legs under there because they wore a robe and there was no visible sign that they had legs. Uh, In fact, their legs weren't much of legs. They were literally skin on bones. All the muscles had atrophied to the point of almost non-existence. And uh, all of the joints in their feet and ankles and knees and even in their hips had contractured to the point that they had their legs folded up under them in a, I don't mean to sound demeaning, but a nice little neat package, and you didn't really know that they had legs. Now, and the men that, were, that rode bicycles, you're saying, how did that even work? Well, these were special made bikes that had tricycles, they were three wheels, and the men would be lifted onto the bike, and they pedaled the bike with a crank set up here where the hands are. These men looked like Arnold Schwarzenegger from the waist up and non-existent from the waist down. I'm saying all that to show you the, the weight, if you will, of this miraculous event which is about to take place. A certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried when they laid, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called beautiful, to ask alms of them that entered into the temple. 
who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked in alms. And Peter, fastening his eyes upon him with John, said, Look on us. And he gave heed unto them, expecting to receive something of them. Then Peter said, Silver and gold have I none. What a disappointment to this man. But such as I have, I give such as I have give I thee in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth rise up and walk and he took him by the right hand lifted him up and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength and he circled the word leaping up and walked stood and walked and entered into the temple walking and leaping praising God and all the people saw him walking and praising God what a scene (laughs) you know the name it and claim it prosperity gospel preachers, which is no gospel at all, have just made havoc of the landscape of the African continent, saying that if you're not in perfect health, you're out of the will of God. If you're not, if you have any financial burdens whatsoever, you're out of the will of God, and we can help you with that. You just give us your money, and uh, we will help you with that. What a what a um, mess of junk. Uh, that's the French term for that, um, J-U-N-Q-U-E. Um, but it, it is almost instantaneous that the word goes through the city and the crowd that comes to see, because they all know this man. They, they all go into the temple. They know the man. And all they have to say, whoever's dis- distributing the message is, hey, the guy at the temple door, he's walking, he's leaping up and down, he's whole. He is complete. So, so thousands of people are now thronging to the temple. And uh, Peter here, uh, it's, it says in verses 10 and 11 that they were filled with amazement and wonder. And uh, Peter, of course, gives God the glory, verse 18. Um, actually, it's uh, verse 12. And when Peter saw it, he answered unto the, unto the people, ye men of Israel, why marvel ye at this? Why look ye so earnestly on us as though by our own power and holiness we made this man to walk? The God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, hath glorified his son Jesus, whom ye delivered up and denied him in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But ye denied the Holy One and the just and desired a murderer to be granted unto you and killed the Prince of Life. He's winning friends with this little sermonette. Whom God hath raised from the dead, whereof we are witnesses. And he's the one that did this. Don't, don't, same as this morning when we talked about Cornelius falling and worshiping Peter. Peter said, I'm just a man like you are. God is the one who is doing all of this. By the way, there was a man in the late 40s who offered, at the time, I believe the amount was $50,000 to anyone who could verifiably prove this kind of a physical miracle. Not not hitting someone down on a stage and claiming that some in invisible inside ailment had been cured but this kind of a miracle is God capable of doing this he absolutely is but he chooses to do things in our lives and through us and with without any human intervention for his glory and for his honor so this huge crowd comes and when we get over to chapter 4 um, as they spake unto the people the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them being grieved that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead and they laid hands on these men 
put them in hold until the next day, for it was now eventide. Howbeit many of them which heard the word believed, and the number of the men was about 5,000. No invitation given, but the gospel had been preached. Peter had preached it, and men are still being saved. Now, in verse uh, 5 and 6 of chapter 4, we have what I would call the, Ju- the Judaism's Gestapo. And it came to pass on the morrow that their rulers and elders and scribes and Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and as many as were kindred of the high priest were gathered together at Jerusalem. They're going to have an insurrection. And when they had set them, Peter and John, in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, Ye rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day be examined of the good deed done to this impotent man, by what means he is made whole? I love this. Be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. So Peter gives an explanation on the why and the how and the who this man was healed. Now I, wa- I pause there because I want us to spend some time this evening look at, looking at verse 13. We are obliged, I think, to look at verse 13 to learn about these two men, Peter and John, and others. The men who were in chapter 8 scattered abroad and went everywhere preaching. These men, are t- uh, we are told in Acts 17, I think it's verse 6, that these men had been used by God to, the, the, the exact wording is, turn the world upside down. Is it possible that the Lord would have us be involved in turning our world upside down in 2018? I would say to you, it is God's plan. So we need to spend some time looking at what the crowd observed in verse 13. Now when they, that would be the leaders of verses 5 and 6 and the crowd that had gathered, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they saw the boldness of Peter and John. The confidence of these men was palpable. You know what I mean by palpable? Um, Find your trachea and move it back and forth. Not too hard, gently. All right, put two fingers alongside of your trachea and push in. I'm alive. You feel that pulse? You're palpating the pulse. The confidence of Peter and John in the midst of this moment was palpable. You could feel it. Confidence. When someone is not confident in their message, everybody knows. Such a person is reluctant Restrained, reserved. It's almost like they have no message at all. But confidence is visible. Confidence radiates. Confidence is something that you can feel in the air, in their demeanor, in their attitude, in their posture, in their forcefulness, in their boldness. In fact, do a study sometime throughout the early chapters of the book of Acts of just the word boldness and how God used the boldness of these men. 
So I pause and I ask myself, am I bold for the Lord Jesus Christ? Do I live for Christ with confidence? Confidence that others can see and sense and feel? Or am I timid about my relationship with the Son of God? Do I speak up for my Savior with confidence? Am I looking for reasons why I shouldn't buy up the opportunities that I'm about to walk by to speak on his behalf, to be a witness in every sense of the word for the Lord Jesus? Next, we learn that they perceived them to be unlearned. They saw the boldness of Peter and John. Their confidence was palpable. And they perceived that they were unlearned. Now, the word unlearned is, uh, is a Greek word, which means they had not been schooled. Uh, the convictions of these men were perceptible. They were uh, evident to all. Strong preferences, all of us have some strong preferences. Preferences are something that a person holds. Convictions are something that holds a person. Convictions are something that you would be willing to burn at the stake for. And the convictions of Peter and John here were perceptible. Convictions are almost always impossible to conceal, although sometimes you feel it uh, politically correct to, uh, to conceal them. Let me, let me share a confidence or a conviction that was the Apostle Paul's conviction. For me to live is Christ. Just close your eyes and image in your mind that phrase, only change it to for me to live is blank. For me to live is my family. For me to live is my job. For me to live is my pension, my future, my 401k. Uh, Paul summarized it, I think, the best when he just said, for me to live isn't about me at all. It's about Christ. For me to live is Christ. Are all of my actions, I ask myself, are all of my decisions, are all of my thoughts brought into conformity to this conviction that for me to live is Christ and others? The convictions that these men had were perceptible. Next, they marveled at their ignorance. <laughs> now, Peter and John, what was their occupation before the Lord Jesus Christ called them? Fishermen or fishers. They were simple men. Uh, I guess if we were going to be unkind, we would say they were smelly men. They were plain old guys, ordinary, uneducated, unrefined, simple men. And it marveled, it caused the crowd there to marvel. We know these guys. How did they pull this off? How did this even happen? This doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense in human logic. And it caused the crowd to actually stand there with their jaws open and say, Wow, these are Peter and John. How did they do this? My question for myself and for you this evening is, God, can God use me? Will God use me despite my simplicity, despite my weakness, despite my frailty, despite all the things which I lack? A better way to say that might be, is my strength entirely of God? Is God the one that 
gives me what I need and does through me what I need to see done, what I need to see him do, so much so that without God I can do nothing. Hey, that sounds familiar. That's John 15, 5. And is God my source of all that I need to live for him? The answer is yes. So the crowd saw their boldness. Their confidence was palpable. They perceived that these men were unlearned. Their convictions were perceptible. They marveled at their ignorance. That almost sounds like an oxymoron, but it isn't. They marveled at their ignorance. You see, their commonality was perplexing. These are just, we know these men. They're just fishermen. And finally, and probably most importantly, the crowd takes knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. They had been with Jesus. What a phrase. Their companion, the companion of Peter and John, was powerful. So much power in the Lord Jesus Christ that merely spending time with him was life-changing to Peter and to John. My question for myself this evening and for you is, have I spent time with my Savior today? Do I spend time with my Savior every day? Is it important for me to spend time in the presence of my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ tomorrow? Martin Luther defines worship in this way, and I quote, that nothing else be done in it than that our dear Lord himself talk to us through his holy word and that we in turn talk to him in prayer and song of praise. Has my fellowship with Christ honored him today? I want to read a portion of a little booklet that someone gave me years ago, and I just remembered that I didn't turn the little mic here on, so I, I won't. I won't drift away. Um, the name of the booklet was My Heart, Christ Home, written by a man named Robert Boyd Munger, published by University Press. I think the first publication was 1952. And over the years, I have reread that thing hundreds of times and given out hundreds of copies. And Munger takes the heart of the Christian treats it as a building, a home, a house, and divides it into, I think, six or seven rooms. And he asks the question, does Christ rule in this room? Does Christ reign in this room? Is Christ the sovereign Lord in this room? And it is a very pointed little booklet. But in the context of this, this phrase, they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. I want to read to you from Munger's booklet, the room called The Living Room. We walked next into the living room. This room was rather intimate and comfortable. I liked it. It had a fireplace, overstuffed chairs, a sofa, a quiet atmosphere. He also seemed pleased with it. He said, this is indeed a delightful room. Let us come here often. It is secluded and quiet, and we can fellowship together. Well, naturally, as a young Christian, I was thrilled. I couldn't think of anything I would rather do than have a few minutes with Christ in intimate companionship. He promised, I will be here early every morning, meet me here, and we will start the day together. 
So morning after morning, I would come downstairs to the living room, and he would take a book of the Bible from the bookcase. He would open it, and then we would read together. He would tell me of its riches and unfold to me its truths. He would make my heart warm as he revealed his love and his grace he had toward me. When I read that, each time I think of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, when Jesus had not revealed who he was to them, and it says in the text there in the Gospels that he opened, starting with the prophets, and told them all the Old Testament had to say about him. And then later they said, as they reflected on that, did not our hearts burn within us as he taught us about himself? So Munger continues, He would make my heart warm as he revealed his love and his grace that he had toward me. Those were wonderful hours together. In fact, we called the living room the withdrawing room. It was a period when we had our quiet time together. But little by little, under the pressure of many responsibilities, this time began to be shortened. Why? I don't know. But I thought I was just too busy to spend time with Christ. This was not intentional, you understand. It just happened that way. Finally, not only was the time shortened, but I began to miss a day now and then. It was examination time at the university. There was some other urgent emergency. I would miss it two days in a row, sometimes more. I remember one morning when I was in a hurry, I was rushing downstairs, eager to be on my way. As I passed the living room, the door was opened. Looking in, I saw a fire in the fireplace, and Christ was sitting there. Suddenly, in dismay, I thought to myself, he is my guest. I invited him into my heart. He has come as Lord of my home, and here I am neglecting him. I turned and went in. With downcast glance, I said, Blessed Master, forgive me. Have you been here all of these mornings? Yes, he said. I told you I would be here every morning to meet with you. Then, Munger says, I was even more ashamed. He had been faithful in spite of my faithlessness. And we all know that. We know that he is faithful, forever faithful, always the same, yesterday, today, forever. I asked his forgiveness, and he readily forgave me as he does when we are truly repentant. Christ continues, the trouble with you is this. You have been thinking of the quiet time the Bible study, the prayer time, as a factor in your own spiritual progress, but you have forgotten that this hour means something to me also. Remember, I love you. I have redeemed you at great price. I value your fellowship. Now, he said, do not neglect this hour, if only for my sake. Whatever else may be your desire, remember the Lord Jesus Christ tells Munger, in this analogy or this allegory, I want your fellowship. Munger concludes by saying, you know, the truth that Christ desires my companionship, that he loves me, he wants to be with me, he wants to be with me and he waits for me, has done more to transform my quiet time with God than with any other single fact. Don't let Christ wait alone in the living room of your heart. But every day, find some time when with your Bible and in prayer, you may be together with him. Will the people that I meet tomorrow take knowledge of me that I have spent time with the Lord Jesus Christ? 
I pray that on this occasion, as we are reminded of this simple truth of these men who turned the world upside down in their era by spending time with Christ, would, it would grip our hearts and change our lives. To give us a, a palpable confidence, boldness to take every opportunity to speak on behalf of our Savior. To give us convictions which fairly ooze out of the pores of us and be perceived by others. To give us a perplexing commonness that Christ would be seen and that we would just be invisible. That they would see Christ in us. And to give us sweet, daily, consistent fellowship with our Savior that others would take note that we have been with Jesus. Let's pray.